We're going to do an overview of the book of Colossians this morning, highlighting a few, few, just a few key texts uh, that kind of capture the theme we've been developing through the book. But imagine, if you will, that the Apostle Paul was applying to be the senior pastor and that you were part of the interviewing com committee and that you're coming from a very settled evangelical perspective and you're part of the interview committee and so you're asking Paul the proper questions. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your education. Tell us about why you would like to apply to be pastor of Christ Community Church. And don't worry, we're going to let the sound team work their magic and if magic can't be worked, I will grab my Pentecostal mic and go for it. Uh, so we'll just, I'm just going to keep talking until you guys tell me to stop. Um, so, um, so we ask about his education. Well, that's pretty impressive. Uh, he, he, he knows the, the, the old covenant scriptures backwards and forwards. He's been trained as a scholar in that uh, realm. Sorry, I heard, I was afraid someone was about to hit me on the back of the head with the mic. So uh, are, we, are we doing the mic switch? Okay, we're good. All right, we're going to hold steady. So, so that would be pretty impressive. So, okay, okay, that's good. That must have been a powerful of your, of your discipleship in Christ. And he says, oh, well, no. Actually, I studied the Bible and went to seminary really before I started following Jesus. But it still was a helpful education to which we would acknowledge and said, well, yeah, I could see that. You know, you, you don't have to be a Christian in order to open up the Bible and read it and to study under learned men. So then tell us about your conversion to Christ. And he looks to this committee and he says, well, it's kind of funny. I was riding my donkey one day and all of a sudden a light appeared and I was knocked off my donkey and I was scared and all of a sudden I heard a voice and I looked and it was a vision of Jesus and Jesus spoke to me and he commissioned me to follow him. Huh, okay, interesting, duly noted. W were there anybody with you? Yes, and can they verify this experience? No, they really didn't hear the same voice that I heard. Uh, they, they, they were confused by what they heard but I heard the message clearly. Okay, okay, thank you, Paul. What happened next? Did you, did you go to uh, leadership and maybe submit your experience so that it could be processed and, and, uh, and, and you could maybe, maybe they could help you kind of walk through understanding that experience? No, I went to the desert for several years. What were you doing in the desert? I was just listening to the Holy Spirit. Huh. And what did the Spirit tell you? Oh, he told me that the secret to our faith has been hidden for centuries, but he's called me to be the one to come reveal the mystery to everybody. And uh, I, what better place to start than Christ Community Church? Huh, okay. So you studied the Bible while not following Christ. Then you had a supposed vision that other people were around, but they can't verify what you saw because they didn't see it too. And then instead of talking to learned men, you just went and hung out in the desert by yourself and sought the spirit and got revelations. That sounds like kind of a weird Indian Hindu kind of thing to me, um, but we'll take you into consideration. Wait for our phone call, right? I'm not gonna call that guy. But it's important for us to let sink in. This is the apostle to the Gentiles. This is our apostle. We stand in line with the tradition of ministry and the revelation that he brought forth in the first century. And we are all presupposing to be following that line of authority. We need to let that sink in lest we get too arrogant and think that our faith is free from odd, odd oddities because our faith is odd. That's a strange thing to say. Oh yeah, my apostle, he didn't get trained under Jesus. He just saw a vision of Jesus and went to the desert for several years to let the spirit teach him. And now I would like to be one of the heralds of the message that he brought back. It's kind of weird, but it's really important for us to remember that because we have such a weird cerebral um, sanitized version of Christianity that people are just waiting for a pandemic so they can get out of the movement and not have to come back. That is what we learned in 2020 and 2021. Make no mistake about it. And when I say we, I'm not just saying cross community church. I'm saying across the board in America, 
drastic alterations in the numbers of church attendance. I don't think that's because they found Jesus irrelevant. They found their church experience irrelevant. And we can pontificate and have all kinds of theories, some of them generous, some of them not so generous. But the truth of the matter is, if my faith is in the externals of the Christian religion, that faith cannot sustain me when my heart is broken and my faith has been lost. In those moments, only the living Christ here with me in the presence of the Holy Spirit can sustain me through those dark times. So it's really important that I am not suggesting that we have to become ex-evangelicals and leave the movement. Um, But I am saying that we have to recognize that Paul doesn't talk like an evangelical. He talks like a mystic who really walks with the contemporary presence of the living Christ. And he encourages other people to participate in that kind of faith. And it sounds a little crazy to me. Yet, that's exactly what he is proclaiming. And it's very, very important for us not to say we're going to rebel against our traditions, but to understand that to the extent that our traditions aren't mirroring that call to that kind of spirituality, then we need to be willing to broaden our minds a little bit and to maybe look at the greater Christian tradition to see all the ways in which the Spirit has led believers to remain faithful to that vision of Christ in you, the hope of glory, from one generation to the next. And one of the things in my journey that I had to recognize is that the faith that was being described in my studies of the New Testament was not marrying the experience and the explanations that I was receiving in my evangelical upbringing. So it created lots of tension for me until eventually God began to expose how much I was reliant on the knowledge of men and the traditions of men to give definition to my faith. And so then he did something very kind. He allowed that faith to fail me utterly and leave me in despair and in darkness and not knowing where I was going to go from there. But in that shaking, everything that could be shaken was shaken. And what remained was a mustard seed of faith that was clinging to Christ. And that was enough. That was enough. Just as Jesus said, that little mustard seed began to move the mountain obstacles in my heart. That came from a revelation that is celebrated in, one, in particular places in the teachings of Jesus and in this book of Colossians from the Apostle Paul. So I want to review some of the, I really want to privilege the text this morning and, and, and I'm hoping it feels a little less like a sermon and a little more like an extended meditation on the scripture. And so let's take a look at some of these key passages. First one being in, in, in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. And I didn't put all of these up on the overhead this morning. There are a few thoughts at the end uh, that we'll have, but I really want you to open up your Bibles or whether that's digital or physical or it might be easier to follow along with the notes. So if you don't have a note, the notes, you can just kick, you know, hit someone in the elbow and they can go out and get those for you. Because I've highlighted some of the poignant parts of these passages that I want us to really focus in on. So the first one is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. As you all know, I'm a pretty committed nerd to Colossians 15 through 20, um, 1, 15 through 20. But for the sake of focus this morning, we're just going to look at these three verses. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invincible God. The church is only the image of of God when she's faithful to Jesus. If she's faithful to money, 
to empire or to religious traditions, she is not imaging forth the God who created us. She is only being faithful to that call when she recognizes that she has to reflect Jesus. And the standard is bigger than just reflecting the religion that was eventually organized in his name several hundred years after he ascended. The call is to mirror Jesus. He is our source because he and he alone is the image of the invisible God. A God who chose to veil himself up until the revelation of Jesus. In fact, a little fun church history for you nerds who like to get on the, the Theo Google or Google Theo, whatever. There's theological things out there on, on the Google. One of the reasons the Eastern church finally allowed art and icons of Christ in their churches is because the prohibition against images was wrong because Jesus had been yet to create that image. And so one of the theological points that was made for iconography that hangs in some of the more traditional liturgical churches is, yes, the New Testament says, don't have a graven image of me, but what we are celebrating is the image that God imaged forth himself, which was Jesus. In Jesus, we see the true nature of God because he is the, invis he is the image of the invisible God, but not just that, he is the firstborn over all creation. In fact, verse 16 says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. Now we briefly mentioned this, but we didn't pause on it. What is happening in Colossians 1 is a retelling a small, well, a, a reinterpreted retelling of the creation narrative in Genesis 1. You'll even see some of the same language that's being used. Uh, in the beginning, God created the what? The heavens and the earth. What do we say here? For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. And what Paul is doing is creating this crystal clear picture we have a picture of creation in Genesis 1, the creation of the earth and, new, and humanity. And in Christ, the teaching in Christ is because of the crucifixion and resurrection, sin and death have been defeated and that the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. And what we see in Christ is the recreation of the new humanity living in the atmosphere of a new heavens and a new earth. And these are phrases that we see throughout the New Testament. These are, this is the language Paul is very comfortable with. If anyone is a new creation, old things have passed away. Now we've evangelicalized to say that that only qualifies for people who walked the aisle and said the sinner's prayer. But there's none of that in Paul's writings, right? We are called to participate in the new humanity of which Jesus is the firstborn. So this will be celebrated here. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things have been created through him and for him. One of the things that I, my heart, that I hope to see happen to the evangelical movement is that we will stop looking to fear as our primary motivation individually and externally. Jesus does not have near the anxiety as contemporary Christian Americans have about his ability to govern the cosmos. This is an incredibly deep and comforting reality, but it is also a challenging reality. Because, just to be equal opportunity, what that means is Donald Trump has been created through him and for him. Joe Biden has been created through him and for him. Our hope does not have to rest on political or economic Stability of the nation in which we dwell. 
that we pray for it, we work for it, and it is preferable. I am not pretending that it's not. But what I am saying is, however that climate goes, our hope is part of a different economic and political system called the kingdom of God. And it works very different than any other system in the kingdom of man. And our sovereign is the Lord and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is critical that we hold that vision as preeminent in our minds as we navigate the polarized landscape of contemporary America and seek to be his witnesses in our sojourn in this land. We have to keep that in front of us. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And look at this. And by him, all things hold together. Think about the group that offends you the most. And in this kind of audience, we're not going to be thinking about the same groups of people. What, do you, what does it mean to you to acknowledge that they are held together by Jesus? I'm not saying that means we have to jettison our personal convictions or anything like that, but I am saying that the way I hold my convictions, it is critical to understand that my so-called ideological religious opponents are held together because of the mercy and the grace of my Savior. And that reality has to lead me in my engagement with others, not the idolatry of my ideology but the revelation of Christ. So here we have in this opening, Paul painting this enormous picture of the sovereignty of Jesus and the extent to which all of creation is dependent upon him, both for life and sustainability. Now, I can't extrapolate all the implications of that for myself, much less for you, but we are all invited to ponder that reality and allow it to impact the way we live our faith. So Paul starts with this really big universal vision, and then he begins to play it out among people groups and all the way down to individuals. So the next passage I want us to reflect upon is Colossians 1, verses 24 through 27, just a few verses down the chapter. Paul states, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is interesting is that he doesn't just say the revelation is for those already in Christ in you, the hope of glory. No, he specifically says the Gentiles, in other words, the outsiders the ones outside of the scope of the definition of holiness according to our religious system and traditions. Christ is in them. So you can imagine how offensive that must have been for first century Jews who were wanting to follow the revelation of Jesus but trying to wrap themselves around this tradition that's been handed down to them in terms of their posture toward the Gentiles and the way they had rules to relegate uh, uh, so that they didn't get contaminated by the presence of Gentiles. And here Paul is saying, the ones you are keeping yourself from, here's the revelation, Christ is in them too. This is the mystery kept hidden for generations that he called me to reveal among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's interesting because the way that Paul talks about his conversions in Galatians 1 he doesn't say in that moment when God saw fit to reveal Christ to me. That's not what it says. 
and you can fact check this later. He says, when it pleased God to reveal Christ in me. And I don't want to get weird this morning, but I think it's important to understand that there is a process in our journey. And sometimes we thought we were being converted to Christ when really we were just being converted to a very small ideology built around Christ. And in his goodness, God takes us on a journey to reveal Christ, not just to us, but in us. And this is the place from which we are called to live our lives in true Christ-centered liberty and service to others. And so the revelation Paul is bringing forth is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I wish that instead of asking people, so tell me about your conversion. When did you come to Christ? When were you born again? I'd much rather hear people's story about, tell me about the moment Christ was finally revealed in you. And it may have began when you walked that aisle. It may have began when you signed up for Sunday school and VBS and all of those things, but maybe somewhere along that process, you came to a deeper revelation that I am not just serving a religion in Christ's name. I am living out the very life of Christ flowing from within me. Because what the world needs isn't the best version of yourself. It needs the humble version of yourself that's humble enough to allow the life of Christ to flow right through you out to others. The world doesn't need you, not even the best you. It needs Jesus, which means your job isn't to bring the best version of you. It is to learn how to abide in Christ and bring the presence of Christ to bear in every single circumstance in which you find yourself because your presence of loving service is the tangible point at which heaven meets earth in the way that it can be seen and touched and tasted and experienced. Well, maybe not tasted, that would be weird, but you know what I mean. All things hold together in him. The mystery that we're missing is that Christ is actually in you as your hope of glory. Now this has implications for how you live your life. So we look at Colossians 3 verses one through four. And what does Paul say? He says, so if you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in. God. Think about the implications here. There is this paradigm that we have that one day I will die and be in the presence of God. It's not a lie, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is you're not waiting. You have died with him. You were buried with him. You have been raised with him. And now you sit in the heavens where he sits. This is so much true that when Jesus does appear, you'll appear too. This is what we're about to read that in just a second. This is what Paul is saying. Christians don't fear death just because we have a theology of the afterlife. We don't fear death because we've already participated in it and passed through on the other side. All that this flesh thing does is takes away the veil of the reality that's already been given to us. And what I implore you is don't wait until that moment. You don't have to lose that veil when you breathe your last breath. You can submit to the revelation of the spirit and live from that glorious reality right now in this very moment through a simple act of submission and faith. That's it. Because this is how Paul writes. You've already died. Your life is hidden with God, in Christ, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, you don't have to agree with my interpretations or articulation of this reality, but what I implore you to do is go find your own. Seek the Lord. 
study the scriptures and please understand that the scriptures are pointing to realities, not just metaphors. But I'm afraid that evangelicals read, you've died with Christ and, been and risen with him and seated in heavenly places as a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. It's a mysterious reality. And if we will give ourselves over to it, it will alter the way we understand our brief sojourn in, on earth and it will alter the way we posture ourselves toward others who are also held together in Christ and loved by him, whether they know it or acknowledge it or not. And this will impact our posture toward them. So what he says in instructions is seek the things above and set your minds on things above. There's a phrase we use called soul heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. And I respect and understand the sentiment behind it. But the truth of the matter is, you will never be earthly good until you're heavenly minded. Until that unseen reality becomes your primary access point to the reality of who you are, then you're gonna be limited by the limitations of what you can see and what you're told and what seems your mind seems to prove to you of this earthly thing that we're all a part of. But the truth is, discipleship is not about Christian, it's not solely about the history of Christian doctrine. It's not solely about learning the culture of the church that you're becoming a member of. Discipleship is about giving oneself over to the practical process of knowing what it means to seek the things above where Christ is and to set my mind on things above and not on earthly things. Please understand, social wars, politics, money, commerce, these are earthly things. I am not saying that can't be part of our circle of concern but it cannot be in the center of our circle of influence, in our circle of preoccupation. That circle needs to be filled with seeking the things above and setting our mind on the things above. Now, this reality that Paul is articulating in this kind of apostolic epistle is also articulated in one of the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus provides the most powerful analogy for our faith. And it's unfortunate because beyond this analogy that Jesus gives, if you look at Christian history, we start changing the analogies. Some Christians may be familiar with analogy of sick people in a hospital being healed. I actually think that that comes closer to the analogy Jesus used because he actually also said that as well. I'm a physician that came for the sick. What's really disturbing to me is how theology has been taken over with analogies to war and analogies to law and courtroom proceedings. I am not saying that those analogies don't have some level of truth maybe to reveal and to speak, but what I am saying is let's privilege the analogies of Christ over the tradition that has eventually been organized in his name. And if we look at this analogy, then we turn to this beautiful passage in John 15. Now, the entire passage is worth contemplating and meditating upon. But this morning, I've pulled out just a few of the passages that I want us to concentrate on. John 15, verses 1 through 4. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Look at this description. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, Neither can you unless you remain in me. Now, that word remain, how many of you have a translation that says abide? Most, a lot of the more, a lot of translations say abide. CSB says remain, same concept. I personally am going to use them interchangeably because I like the word abide because the dude abides, right? 
Thank you. Whoever said amen, thank you. <laughs> One Lebowski fan. Um, but the dew divides, so do the followers of Jesus. We abide, man. That's like our whole thing. That's the whole thing that we're responsible for is this idea of abiding. So what exactly does that mean? And what's interesting about the analogy Jesus uses is that his father is the gardener, he is the vine, and we are the branches. Do the branches choose whether or not they stay attached to the vine? Nope. A branch that has been grafted in, can that branch choose to graft itself into a vine? Nope. It needs the processes of an expert gardener that can start the grafting process. And once that is instituted, that branch is held in place from the life source flowing from the vine. That's the ultimate goal. You may put some tape and some, some, some uh, support around it in the beginning, but that's not the goal. The goal is to remove the tape and the branches there because the life of the vine holds it there. And that is the analogy that Jesus uses. This is not a, simply a journey of moral choices. It is awakening to the grace of God that saw you when you were not morally qualified and chose to pull you in and hold you there. That is the security of our identity in Christ. He goes on to say in verse nine, as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain or abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the fa my Father's commands and remain in his love. Ah, so now we see something. In discipleship, we should privilege the teachings of Jesus. When you look at curriculum and you look at discipleship, they privileged the organization of theology that was organized by very holy, learned men. Can we learn from this? Of course we can. Should we be aware and study it? Yes, of course we should. But is that what discipleship is all about? Now theology, the study of theology should only serve your faithfulness to Jesus. It should never replace it. And the, and the truth is, hang on, let me see where I was. Um, the truth is, what should be privileged is the teaching of Jesus and the commands of Christ. That's why we actually purposefully tried to rework our children and youth curriculum to privilege the teachings of Jesus because ultimately, the fruit of obedience is born by following Jesus, not following theological systems, not following denominational cultures, and not following the organizations of men. It is in prioritizing that you are submitted to Jesus and that the way that I remain faithful and manifest that love is I have to privilege the commands of Christ. So he says that if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy uh, may be in you and your joy may be complete. Does joy characterize the overall atmosphere of your life? Is that the fruit that your spirituality is bearing? It's really not a negotiable reality. Joy. Now, I'm not saying the absence of suffering, and I'm not saying just the presence of being happy and positive. I'm talking about something that goes much deeper. But joy, joy is a non-negotiable fruit that helps reveal my faithfulness to Jesus. That's why it's non-negotiable. That's why, honestly, if you feel like some system of discipleship and rules or regulation are sapping you of your joy, filling you with shame and shackling you down, by all means, feel free to let it go. Might not be where Jesus is leading you. It may have been well-intentioned when someone put the book in your hand. Might not be where Jesus is leading you. It's okay to say Saul's armor is not fitting me here. I gotta take it off because I've got a Goliath to face and I can't do it with these shackles. So, 
I told you this, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Verse 12, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one is greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What I command you, and I do not call you servants anymore, because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. Now again, friendship with Jesus is a non-negotiable to faithful faithfulness to Jesus. The call isn't to serve some God who is distant that I barely want to lift my eyes of lest he be angry with me, but I want to do my best to work hard for him so that he is pleased with me. That's not the invitation. You're being invited to be a friend of Christ so you can simply join him in the ministry that he's already successfully completing in his own name. So, so it's not this distant idea. It's this intimacy of, I am a friend of Christ. And I'm living from my identity as his friend. Verse 16, you did not choose me. I chose you. Now I understand our language. We don't really mean it like that, but anyone who has found God has simply stumbled on the revelation that God has found them. He was preceding that whole thing in the process. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask my father in my name, he will give you. And this is what I command you, love one another. So then the question is, because I'm in an evangelical church and we have been inundated with preaching that mirrors self-help improvement TED Talks. So we're looking for those in sermons. I, of course, want to do my part. So everybody wants, what are the steps? Give me the list. What are the seven keys of power? What are the four steps to success spiritually and beyond? Give me those steps. What do I do to abide in Christ? This is the revelation that dumps everything on its head. What you do in order to abide of Christ is nothing. Nothing. We are not striving on a system of self-improvement to one day be more worthy of God's love, power, and grace. It's just been given to us as a gift. Now, is there a work for you to do? Yes. The work is to believe. Not up here, but right here. That is the work you must do. And let me tell you, some days... It is the hardest work. Where I do appreciate war analogy is that sometimes it feels like a fight to remain in that place of belief. Sometimes it feels like there are very real enemy soldiers attacking me, pulling me away from that place of trust and belief and awareness. But my not, job is not to fight these things. It's simply the fight to get back to my resting and my trusting and my believing. How do I remain and abide? We abide in Christ by remembering that we abide in Christ. Now, look, if that frustrates you, I get it. I remember when one of my teachers said that to me, I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Good luck building a church around that, buddy. You're not, you gotta sell me a solution. We do nothing Christ has done it all. We're simply called to live from the reality of this truth. Now, this is where the work comes in. This is why discipleship programs should be about training apprentices to Jesus in the school of life. Not indoctrinating, not, not infiltrating some denominational culture, but raising up apprentices to Jesus in the school of life. That's what discipleship is, where you privilege, number one, the teachings of Christ, but you also privilege the need to remain aware of who you are. This is always going to be the greatest battle of faith, being able to maintain that. So how do we do this? My suggestion, and here's my little TED Talk for the end. And it's a pretty good one, I think. How many 
preachers boast about the content of their sermon before they even deliver it. But nonetheless, that's what you're stuck with this morning. By establishing a rhythm of life in which we practice awareness, learning, reflecting, and action. Awareness, learning, reflecting, and action. Awareness, learning, reflecting, and action. We are so serious about this that we're actually reworking the missional strategy documents of our community as a staff and as leadership. These four elements will be very much a part of what we seek to do in our mission together because we see these as the non-negotiables. Awareness, learning, reflecting, and action. How might that look? Well, you begin with the acknowledgement that you possess a secret life hidden in Christ and you must prioritize the secret place to remember who you are. Now, again, I'm trying to be sensitive to all the burnt out evangelicals. I'm talking about something more than having a quiet time where you check it off your list and go on. I am talking about prioritizing daily appointments with the Almighty. That's, not, that's what I'm talking about. Not information about the Almighty, but daily divine appointments with the divine. All the great traditions of Christianity bear witness to this being the way we maintain our faithfulness to God is through prioritizing this secret life in him. So you engage in awareness. What is it? Well, it might mean, here's the thing about awareness. When you're not aware, you don't know that you're not aware. It's only after you become aware that you realize you were not aware the day before. So that means you are dependent on an intervention. That intervention is called the Holy Spirit. He can awaken that awareness for you. So you engage in a posture of prayer and humility in which you begin to ask God for those things that you do not yet understand. Remember what James says? You lack wisdom because you don't ask for it. So awareness is the revelation. It's the awakening. It's the remembrance. Then there's learning, okay? Learning, which means you read scripture to discover who you are. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a great place to start. But Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not simply to be read so that you understand what you're obligated to submit to and then try to alter your behavior to obey it. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a revelation of who you already are. So if Jesus says, don't judge lest you've been judged, does that mean it's impossible for you to judge? No one doesn't mean that. But it means once you engage in that, you are creating a disruption in your heart because you are choosing to live outside of your nature. When I refuse to forgiveness, why is it such a struggle? Is it because I need to work hard to modify my behavior to be a good forgiver? No, it's because I'm already given the nature of forgiveness. And when I refuse it, I create a disruption in myself because I am living contrary to the nature. Do you see how this is different than classic discipleship? One says, read the Bible to figure out what you need to do. I'm saying you read the scriptures to find out who you are. They are not a revelation of your failure. They're a revelation of your nature. And so we learn to then align ourselves and submit ourselves to their revelation. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a great place to start. Where else could you start? Oh, the book of Colossians is a pretty darn good place to start to dive in and study and learn about the nature of who you are. Or John 15, maybe. Reflecting. This is the call to contemplation. This is called to practice the, the discipline and the art of meditation. Now, this is probably one of those things where all four of these elements could be a standalone sermon, so I'm just kind of doing an overview. But I have become convinced that meditation is the indispensable spiritual practice for my life. And I've become quite fascinated with it in the past few years. One of the things that's fascinating is how every spiritual tradition has recognized the power and the benefits of meditation, including the Christian tradition, including the great tradition of Christianity. At this point, I don't understand how to sit in my office and help anyone who's not willing to give themselves over to the practice of contemplative prayer and meditation because it is such an indispensable part 
of my own spiritual development. Now, I get that might be a little myopic, a little egotistical of me, but I can only bring what I know works. And this works. It's taking time to use prayer to set your focus and to speak out your intention. And the great thing about Christian meditation, what's distinct about that is that we focus it on Christ and on the scripture. That is the means through which we create this space to have these moments of communion. We're like your apostle in the desert. You sit with the Holy Spirit and he is your teacher. Not me, not Sunday school, not your small group leader. We wanna serve you, but if you're landing at us, you're falling way short of what you could experience. It's where you sit with the living Christ and the spirit speaks to you as you meditate on the scripture and as you meditate on the life of Christ. And then action. Notice that three-fourths of this idea is internal. Only one-fourth is external. Doesn't make it less important, but it does highlight the idea that too many times we tell people what to do without teaching them how to be. And that's why we need to learn how to be and allow our doing to come out of that revelation. Live from the conscious awareness of Christ in you. As your mindfulness increases, so will your awareness of the Spirit's leading. So that like Paul says in Galatians, you can learn to keep in step with the Spirit. Experiment with this. The only reason why I can speak with such passion is because now I have privately done an experiment, a, a spiritual hacking experiment on myself. And I know the atmosphere of my life is altered when I prioritize time with Jesus alone in which I am asking, God, my heart goes so dull. Like the old hen prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it for thy courts above. I understand the author of that hymn in a way I didn't before. Lord, awaken me, help me to see. Let me leave and encounter my day without rage or offense because I have nothing to defend. And if I encounter rage and offense, that's just people showing me who they are. It's not them showing me who I am. And it took decades for that to sink in my heart and to start living that way but it's beautiful. And I don't have to judge them for it because I'm just called to bring the mercy of Christ to bear wherever they are as well. So we take that time to cultivate. Now, I've given you scriptures that I would suggest that you read and ponder. I would suggest that you not only read and ponder them, but that you turn it into prayer. So if you're reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you say, how can you think to remove the speck from your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye. I wanna read that and not go, really wish Adam Calloway would read this. He could really benefit from this advice, which is how most of us read the Bible. But what if instead of that, I say, Holy Spirit, I'm so blinded by the log in my eye, I can't even see it myself. Help me remove the log from my eye by delivering me from the assumption that I'm the one reader that this isn't for. Let me engage with what you're saying here for me. Holy Spirit, what is the log? What's the thing? And here's the thing, a Sunday school teacher and a preacher in a book can't tell me what that is because it is a complicated reality born out of my own experience and trauma and strategies for self-protection. So only the illumination of the Holy Spirit is gonna help me begin to perceive what that is so that I can remove that log and be useful and helpful to others. So you see how you read a passage, but then you turn it into dialogue. That's how you meditate. That's how you contemplate. That's how you internalize this truth and make it not just cerebral, but livable. Now, as the worship team comes forward. If 
your mind doesn't take in information primarily from reading and you're more visual. I am not saying I recommend that you just abandon the pursuit of reading. I think you should still read scriptures, listen to scripture. But I've also put in the notes this graphic that we began with. And maybe for some of us, our journey into contemplation and meditation on the truth of the scripture of who we are might begin visual. Maybe you just take this like I did this morning. There's a new folk group uh, that we found on Instagram. If you're interested, text me. And their album is fantastic. And they have a new recording of the doxology. And at 6.17 this morning, I stepped outside with the dogs and a cup of coffee. My little phone hit repeat. Go ahead and keep that up for just a few more minutes. Hit repeat on that doxology. And this is what I contemplated. This is the mystery of discipleship. As Jesus is one with the Father, so we are one with Christ. As Jesus said, his ministry was a manifestation of what he saw the Father doing and what he hears the Father speaking. So we too begin to live lives of productive, liberating ministry because we learn to take time to listen to what Jesus is saying and see what he is doing. And then we look with new eyes and we go participate there. And we complete that redemptive arc that is a blessing both to the receiver and to the giver. That is a life we're living. That, my friends, is Christianity. It is living out the life of the living Christ who has made you his dwelling place, who has made you 